Please turn with me now to Romans chapter 7. Today we'll be reading from chapter 7 verse 1 to chapter 8 verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, this is your word. 
Help us to receive it as your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll have noticed we have a long passage to look through this morning. You may have found it a puzzling passage, slightly bewildering bits of the reading. But I want to convince us that it's a hugely important passage. I think this is massively important to the Christian life, understanding Romans 7. So I'm keen to dive in pretty quickly, but I've just got one question to ask before we do. The question is this, how was your week? You'll see it on the outline on the back of the service sheet if you want to follow along. How was your week? Now, if you weren't here last Sunday morning, you might be thinking, well, it was all right, but now's a weird time to be asking. Can we talk about this later? But if you were here last Sunday morning, you know what I'm really asking. I'm asking, whom did you serve this week? We saw last week that chapter 6 tells Christians that we have a new master, back half of chapter 6, a different master, a better master. So we used to be employed by sin, but now we've died with Christ and a new master is in charge. We now have a new, a better boss. And so Christians face a choice, a genuine choice. How many hours are we going to give to our old boss? How many hours are we going to give to our new master, God, his righteousness? If you filled out a timesheet of last week, which phone were you answering? Last week I implored us, pick up the phone of your real boss. Don't re-enslave ourselves to the kind of sin whose wages are death. So I'm really curious, how did it go? How was your week? I'll tell you about my Monday. That's all we've got time for, my Monday. I'm not going to go into all the details, but for various reasons, my Monday morning was massively stressful. Lots of things um, going on, lots of things going wrong. And I found by lunchtime, both my phone lines were ringing loudly. God, my real boss, my better boss, he was on the phone. He was reminding me of uh, the need to work for righteousness. God the Father here, I know you're under pressure. Rog, I know you've had setbacks. I know you're tempted to get frustrated, to get angry, to start blaming others, lashing out. But remember, you work for me now. Be patient, be gracious, and trust me with the stuff you're stressed about. After all, you did just preach a sermon on this, Rog. I mean, you told all those people last week to offer their bodies um, to God, to righteousness. Serve me, your better master. And that line was really clear. I caught every word, Romans 6. But even as those truths were coming to mind, somehow the other phone line was ringing. And not just ringing, but Sin, my old master, managed to get it onto speakerphone somehow. Rog, 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 hi, hi, hi. Yeah, um, it's Sin here, you know, you know, your, your, your boss. Okay, old boss. But that's not important right now. The important thing is we go way back, you and me. Good times we had, good times, good times. Look, buddy, I don't know what they're saying to you on the other line, but if you ask me, you have every right to lash out. It's not your fault. It actually never is your fault. And so blame someone else. You deserve better than this. You're too important for these kind of stresses and strains. You're a preacher. So then, 
who did I work for Monday afternoon? Well, I prayed, and I tried to serve righteousness. I knew from Romans 6, I have a choice here. I knew that God, my new master, is better. I didn't want to be a hypocrite preacher. And yet, I couldn't get the speakerphone turned off. It just kept nagging at me. Those proud thoughts, those sinful thoughts. In the end, I actually left my office, and I went and found Jessie, my wife, and and asked her to pray for me to be godly. I was actually in tears of frustration at this. That was me. 24 hours in, a massive battle. And your experience might not have been quite that immediate or dramatic. Perhaps you did, though, find yourself at some point asking, was chapter 6, verse 22 actually true? Just have a look at it. We're on page 943, if you've turned it close your Bibles. Chapter 6, verse 22, page 943, where we were told last week, now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. Now you are free to serve God. Really? I don't feel very free. In fact, it seemed like rather than fixing things, my sermon just highlighted the battle. Actually made it harder last week. What are you supposed to do with the feeling when serving the right boss is a real struggle? That was my Monday. Then over the next 24 hours, I heard from a couple of other people about some ongoing battles with sin where it felt like they were going backwards, they said. And actually, my first reaction was to be shocked. (laughs) I was like, didn't you listen to my sermon? How can you still be struggling with that? I thought you were a mature Christian. Sometimes it's our own nagging sinfulness that surprises us. Sometimes it's other people's in the church. But I guess every genuine Christian here will recognize it's not automatic to say no to sin. It's a fight. And actually, the more we step up to the fight, the more we want to, the more we feel the struggle. So what do you do with that feeling of struggle? That's what we're on today. What do you do with it? Do we give ourselves a final warning and threaten serious punishment next time? Do we try and make it up to God if we've had a bad week. Perhaps you do some extra service. Perhaps you tick every box on that little peach form inside your service sheet. Do we despair? How am I ever going to make it to the end of the Christian life when I'm struggling so much today? Do we question if we're Christians at all? Do we shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's never going to change. What's the point of fighting? In Romans 7, we're going to see from Paul just how agonizing this struggle can be. And we're going to start to answer what do you do with that struggle, with that feeling. But before we get to the agony, we've got one more point about freedom. Point one on the outline. Um, The point is this. You are legally free from law captivity. Um, And it hopefully will come up on our screens. Um, I've changed one word. Um, You are legally free from the law 
law's captivity. Now, this first point might sound to you like it's not that relevant to, to kind of daily life, to the struggle, but let me promise you it is. We're going to have to concentrate for a few minutes to understand why it is, but my hope is by the end of the morning, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, will be deeply precious to those of us who are Christians and know the struggle with sin. So please hang, hang on in there. So this is the point. You are legally free from the law's captivity. To get that, just have a look at verse 1 and then verse 4 of chapter 7. So verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? And then verse 4. Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. There's the basic point. Paul, is, he's speaking to Jews, Jewish Christians in the Roman church. That's why he says, um, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And he's reminding them about the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And it was a binding contract. The only way out of it was death. But verse 4, that's what's happened to you. You have died with Christ. In verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration of that, an example of that from marriage. So most of us know marriage is till death do us part. When the partner dies, the marriage ends. And God's law was the same. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another So you Jews used to be in a legally binding contract, a covenantal relationship with God and his law. But that has come to an end with your death. Instead, you're now married permanently to Christ. And what kind of marriage was it? Was it kind of happy, happy marriage, productive, tragically cut short? Well, no, verse 5, just look at the fruit of it. Verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Just look at how verse verse 6 describes the experience. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So the experience of being married to the law was one of captivity. How come? Here's the bit to concentrate. The law included specific punishments for failure. And what Israel brought to the marriage was failure. The terms of the covenant, God's marriage with Israel at Sinai, were very, very simple and very clear. If you obey my voice, you will live and be blessed. If you disobey my voice, you will be cursed and die. It's all there in black and white. If you want to look it up, Exodus 19, Leviticus 26, and then it's repeated in Deuteronomy 28. Perfectly fair, perfectly straightforward. Obey my voice, that's the path to life and blessing. Disobey my voice, that is the route to curse and death. So actually, the marriage wasn't just till death us do part. It was, if you're an unfaithful bride, death must us do part. You must obey my voice, Israel, or the death penalty hangs over your head. Now, that might sound really harsh. 
especially if you've just wandered into Chalmers this morning, that might sound like God's being really harsh. Um, in a human marriage, that would be really harsh. But you've got to remember, when it comes to marrying God, the giver of life, actually he is within his rights to give or take life. And when it comes to marrying God, the good God, the perfect, righteous, holy God, well, of course his people have to be righteous. Be holy as I am holy. Of course they have to be righteous. Of course he has to give them good laws. And of course he has to hold them accountable. Again, because he is good. He can't just bend the rules. So here's the bottom line. God wasn't the problem in the marriage. Israel was. God's law wasn't the problem. It was fair. Israel were not. Their sinful passions, their Adamic tendency to rebellion, it took God's law and broke it. Israel broke the law quickly. They broke the law continually. They broke it recklessly. They deserved the death penalty by the terms of the law. They behaved like Adam. In fact, they literally behaved just like Adam. Let me show you that on the diagram we've been using for these middle chapters in Romans. Um, it's actually a repeat of the same story, the Old Testament. You, you see it twice. So we've been saying since chapter 5, Paul's got, um, saying there's two humanities. There's one in Adam and there's one in Christ. And back right at the start of the Bible in Genesis 2, Adam was given one clear commandment. And, if, and the warning was, if you break my commandment, you will surely die. He did. He sinned. And so he did die. He began a humanity full of sinners on death's row. But then, at Mount Sinai, God rescued a people for a fresh start. Come and serve me. He gave his people a law, even clearer this time, ten clear commandments with lots of detailed case law. But the the term was the same, If you rebel and break my commandments, you will die. And they did. Two times the same result, death row. Do you see that? Adam kicked off this spiral of rebellion, and the law just repeated it. Because Israel broke it. The the, the relationship went like this. Law meets sin. They get married, but sin breaks law. Law demands death penalty. And so captivity was the experience. But then here's the great bit, verse 4. What's true for Christians is that that death penalty has been paid. Remember verse 4? You have died in Christ. The death penalty has been paid. It doesn't actually matter whether you start as in Adam, a non-Jew, or as under the law, a Jew. All of you deserve the death penalty, but wonderfully, if you become a Christian, that penalty has been paid, the punishment has been taken. Look back at the Bible's chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so you can belong to another. Look at how chapter 8 over the page, verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, puts it like this. Eight, uh, sorry, no, eight, uh, verse 3, verse 3. 8 verse 3, 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. That's what we were seeing two weeks ago um, in chapter 6. The old me has actually died with Christ. The punishment has been paid. It's been paid at the cross. That's why we're free. The pink arrow says, look, look. It was till death us do part. Death us must part. Death us has parted. You have died. As verse 6 puts it, we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we now serve in a new way of the Spirit. You are legally free from the law's captivity. If you're still with me, well done. (laughs) You may, if you're new at church, again, be thinking, what has this got to do with anything? What's all this stuff about the Jewish law got to do with the struggle that I began with? And I want to say it's massively important to remember this stuff, to remember that we fight sin from a different position, a different starting point. We do not fight sin from within death row. Most importantly, we don't fight sin and bounce in and out of death row. Do you ever feel that? You have a bad week? I'm behind bars again when it comes to God. It's not that at all. Jesus has released us. Yes, we sometimes, well, every week we have a week that, where we would deserve to die by God's standards. But we have died. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need reminding about this because when we do struggle with sin, well, what did I do on Monday? What did I think? Do you know what? When I heard of those folks going backwards in sin... I was tempted. My first thought was to say, right, that is it. (laughs) You had a warning on Sunday. Now it's time for a final warning. It's time to kind of start issuing some threats. Look, people, or look, Rog, if you do that one more time, I am going to make you pay. Or maybe the church is going to make you pay. Or God's going to make you pay for it. That is precisely not how to fight sin as a Christian. The gospel has freed us from that dynamic. The death penalty no longer hangs over our heads. There is no condemnation, chapter 8, verse 1, for those in Christ Jesus. We now walk, chapter 7, verse 6, by the Spirit. And next week, in chapter 8, we're going to find out how does that work in practice? What does it actually mean to live by the Spirit as a Christian? But if you have been around the Bible for a while... If you're a long-term Christian, you might have another question. You might be saying, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Stop the slideshow. I am not ready to go into chapter 8 because, because I've got a burning question about what Paul seems to have just said. Are you saying the law was bad? How can Paul, the apostle, be so anti the law which God gave? Surely we shouldn't be throwing our Old Testament away. Surely we shouldn't be saying that the law has nothing to say to Christians about morality and moral guidance. Surely the law wasn't a bad thing. That's exactly the right question to be asking at this point. Chapter 7, verse 7. Paul brings that question up. 
What shall we say then? Is uh, that the law is sin? Is law the problem? Again, the answer, by no means. Absolutely not. And this is our second point. God's law is good. Sin is the problem, as the law showed us. It's clear that's the answer. Just look at verse 12, if you want to see it in a single verse. 7 verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is a good thing, God's law. And and Paul gives us an example, a specific command um, to show us that. So do not covet is the command he, he gives, which is a good law. Just imagine for a moment if Edinburgh uh, was a zero-coveting environment. Just imagine how that would affect the other crime statistics. That law would protect society, obviously from jealousy, but also from theft and from muggings and from adultery and from fraud and from sexual abuse and from murder and pornography and so much more. It is a good law as well as protecting individuals from bitterness, ingratitude, dissatisfaction, envy. Loving God and loving my neighbor, of course, involves not coveting. It's a good law. But what happens when God's good law meets a sinful heart? Well, verse 7. Sin, seizing an opportunity through that commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. We've said from this pulpit, you only find out how rebellious the human heart is when you tell a toddler what to do. It's also true, you find it out when you tell an adult what to do. Do you have, ever have that feeling you're walking past a sign, it says, do not walk on the grass, what's your next thought? Oh, I want to break that. Or do not touch this, wet paint, or 20 miles an hour around South Edinburgh. It's just in us, that, that rebellious, I just want to go my own way. And even more so when it comes to God's law. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Where's the real problem? Is it the law? No. Just look at in verse 13, whose fault it is that Paul got trapped by death. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what's good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. God's law is good. In chapter 13, Paul will use it to inform Christian behavior. Sin is the real problem, which the law highlighted. I heard someone put it like this. I I liked it as an illustration. Sin's like a horrible monster lurking in the shadows. You see the monster clearly when you shine a light towards it, God's law. Shining a light towards a monster wakes it up and makes it angry. That's a good, good way of putting it. Sin is the problem, the monster, not law. At which point we might think, okay, okay, phew, we're, we're fine then, we're fine, that's a relief. We've identified the problem, sin, And last week, 6 verse 22, we were told that sin is no longer our master. We're free from sin. So everything's okay. We can go home to lunch slightly early. Well, it is true that sin is no longer in charge. But do you remember those diagrams last week? They'll come up again in case you weren't here. Um, We said last week that um, 
theologically, we are um, already raised. Ooh, hoping a diagram is going to appear. There it is. That's what's true of us theologically. We used to be in Adam under sin, enslaved to sin, but now we've died with Christ and we're in a new humanity in Jesus. Theologically, that's true right now. It's absolutely certain that we'll end up in the new creation if we're Christians. We're welded to Jesus by faith union. Where he goes, we will follow. That's theologically true, but experientially, this is what's going on. There's an overlap of those worlds, and now and not yet about Christian experience. So we still experience suffering. We still experience death. And worst of all, we experience the sin battle that's in this world. There's an overlap. But for the rest of Romans 7, the question is, how close to home is that tension? How keenly do we as Christians feel this tension, this overlap of Adam's world and Jesus' new world? And the agonizing point from verses 14 onwards is that Christians experience that tension not just out there, but right inside us. Turns out sin is not just some old master on the other end of the phone line. Sin sits inside me like a rebel receptionist, always wanting to take the call and never popping out for lunch. There's a traitor in my very being. That's because of my sinful flesh. My Adamic humanity, the old me, sin is riddled through the very core of our human nature. which explains the puzzling, bewildering quality of the rest of our passage. Just look at verse 14. How can Paul say, for we know the Lord's spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin? How can a Christian say, I'm sold under sin, when last week we've been set free from sin as a slave master? Verse 18. How can a Christian say, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I thought Christians had the spirit, were married to Jesus. We now have a choice. How can he say this kind of stuff? So strong are some of Paul's negative statements here. It sounds so defeatist at points that many interpreters say this can't be describing normal Christianity. There are two options, one, one alternative. One, one, they say, this is describing Paul as a Jew before he became a Christian, before he had the spirit. So he loved God's law, but he just couldn't do it. And you can see see why people say that, but I don't think it's right, because there's a tense change. Verses 7 to 13, he was describing his past experience as a Jew, but from verse 14 onwards, he shifts to now, to the present tense, to speak of his current Christian experience. That's one suggestion people make, a far more dangerous way of reading this passage goes like this. You may have heard it. Someone in the first service told me they had heard it at church they'd been at. It's sometimes called perfectionism. It's popped up in various holiness movements over the years. It says this, that struggle with with sin in Romans 7, that's kind of flawed Christianity. It's, It's weak Christianity, unfulfilled Christianity. If you only surrender yourself fully 
to the Holy Spirit, chapter 8, or if you only tried harder, became serious like us, if you only prayed in the particular style that we pray, or if you only had a a moment of, of sudden extra blessing, then you'd be free. You'd be perfect. You could join the rest of us in Romans 8, where we this kind of struggle is a long-forgotten memory. Now, it's definitely true that Romans 8 concentrates more on the spirit and Romans 7 more on the flesh. But it's funny because in Romans 8, we still hear about the flesh. Just look at verse 10. Romans 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And what's the application? Verse 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul has to still command people not to live by the flesh in Romans 8 because the flesh is still around, alive and kicking, experientially. It's why we groan for our bodies to be redeemed. It's why back in our passage, verse 24, Paul cries out for rescue in the future. Who will redeem me from this body of death? It's why, and this is the thing that most persuades me, the end of chapter 7 comes to this conclusion. I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul, the apostle, the great apostle Paul, even he is conflicted. Like he says in Philippians, I'm not perfect, but I press on. Like he says in Galatians, the desires of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit are waging war against each other. Normal experience, Christian experience, is to have that tension running right through us. Let me show you on the diagram. We're going to zoom in a bit to the overlap of the ages. Um, we've said um, before my conversion so before I became a Christian I used to only be in Adam that's me, original sinful flesh, grey a grey shadow of what humans are supposed to be and then after the resurrection when Jesus comes back Jesus will redeem our bodies, give us new bodies and after that point in the new creation we will never sin, not once not ever, Christians will only do what God wants, that's the new me But right now, right now, at this time, we are conflicted. That is, there's a light blue new me inside the dark grey old self. And the point is, they're pulling in different directions. This is why it's agony in Romans 7. That's why I was struggling on Monday. That explains your week if you tried to live for righteousness. And so as you read through Romans 7, the key thing is to ask, is Paul describing the grey him or the blue him, the new him, the the new me? Let's look back then briefly at a couple of those verses I flagged up that seem so confusing. Verse 14. What is it that's sold under sin? Well, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul's describing the natural him, the the old self, the one riddled with sinfulness, the grey man. And verse 15, he doesn't actually understand what still comes out of his flesh. 
the wrong longings, the impure deeds, the cruel speech. Verse 16, he doesn't want to do those things. He actually agrees with God's law now, but his flesh, well, it just keeps mounting a civil war. Hang on, just pause on that. A civil war. Hang on, if I'm on God's side now, I want to be on God's side, and my flesh is fighting against me, well, it's not really me who's doing this. Verse 17. Now it's no longer I who do this. It's not the real me, the blue me. It's sin that dwells within me. So there, that new self is beginning to come into focus. The real me, the blue me, the new creation me. The very fact there's such a tension within Christians shows that there's a new me. So what about verse 18? Because he did say in verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. (laughs) But look closely what he says next. That is in my flesh. The grey self is totally corrupt. My sinful human nature is utterly riddled with sin and it's still there, agonizingly close to home. And it is agonizing. I I know that some of today's sermon sounds like quite technical theology, but Romans 7 is is a cry from the heart. It's agony. End of verse 20, he says, sin dwells within me, over the page. Sin dwells within me. Why can't I disconnect the phone? Says the Christian. End of verse 21. Evil lies close at hand. Why can't I just get rid of the receptionist? The traitor who who says, yeah, 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 let's let's let that call through. Yeah, we'd love to do that. Verse 22. Yes, I delight by God's spirit in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is agony sometimes being pulled in two directions. Civil war until Jesus returns. That's point three, and we're not going to have time for much of point four, but I just want to pause and say, that's the feeling. If you feel it, it's normal. But what should we do with that feeling? Time is short, so I'm going to address a number of different types of people. Each of these should be a much longer conversation than I'm about to give. So please talk about this after the sermon. Sermons should start conversations, not end them. Please chat about this. Right, first person. If you have no sense of this battle with sin... If you read chapter 7 and think, I've never felt that, you are almost certainly not a Christian. That's the first person. Secondly, if this battle for you is a distant memory, I started like that, but to be honest, I haven't battled for a long time then you might well be a Christian, but you are in grave danger. It is possible to so lower God's standards and so overestimate our, where we've got to that we start to think we're kind of, we're, we're fine, we're fine. This is me now. There's no sin left to fight. Well, if that's you, you're in a deeply dangerous place. 
be good to chat to a Christian friend or, or to me. Thirdly, if you're someone with a tender conscience for whom this really is how you feel, how should we handle it? I guess most of us might be in this category. How do we handle it? Well, remember point one, not with the law. So tempting to go into that, right, final warnings, threat of death, but that's what we've been released from. So when you struggle as a Christian, do not threaten yourself with penance. I have to make it up to God. Paul doesn't turn back to that. He looks forward to the moment when Jesus will rescue us. And he looks across at the fact there's no condemnation because I died with Christ. He looks to the cross and says, I am justified right now. I had a failure of a week. I am justified right now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of us will feel weary at the battle with sin. Some of us might feel terrified, a kind of, I find it so hard just to get through today and keep fighting. How am I going to keep doing this for another 40, 50, 60 years? And actually, if I'm really honest, there's something inside me that wants the easy life. There's a lot in me that does just want to live for self, for comfort, for sex, for money, for now. Something in me wants to walk away. That's a scary thought, isn't it? How am I going to keep going? Am I even really a Christian? Someone asked me last week. Well, yes. Paul was. This is normal experience. And strength to fight comes day by day. Don't try and live the rest of your Christian life today. Just concentrate on today. Pick up the phone. Ask for help. Chapter 8, verse 1 is one of the most precious verses I know of in the Bible. I hope you see how it builds on our first point, verses 1 to 6. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. My flesh may continue its rebellion. It's agonizingly close to home. But actually, the real me wants to go God's way. You see that in verses 20 to 25. We don't have time for them, but you see Paul starting to say, actually, the real me is on God's side. And wonderfully, there's no condemnation, whatever week I've had. So don't despair at the battle. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your son. Thank you that united to him, the new Adam, the true Israel, the one who's always done the right thing. We thank you that united to him, we are righteous. We thank you that in his death, he paid the price, took the punishment we deserve. And we thank you that in his life, He's begun a resurrection. He's begun a new realm, a realm where we will never sin. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. And we pray that while we wait, we would live 
free from condemnation, but genuinely fighting the flesh. Help us to stay in the battle, to not give up, to not despair, to not lose our assurance, but to press on in living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.